0: Well, we're going to be in the book of John this morning, John chapter 5, John chapter 5. And um, we're going to be focusing on verses 17 through 29, but we're going to start back up at uh, verse 16. As a church, we've been walking through the book of John for the last few months. And the book of John um, has this pattern sometimes where there will be a miracle that is done. And that miracle um, kind of becomes the jumping off point for the gospel to kind of spend a lot of time talking. And it's just kind of this pattern. So that sometimes there's a miracle and then or, or, or some some event that happens, and then there's a discourse that follows. And we've actually already seen that, um, for example, in John 3. And we're going to see that this chapter. We're going to see that in the next chapter. We're going to see that a couple of times where there will be an event, and then there will be a, a discourse that follows. And so last week we saw how Jesus healed a lame man, how he healed a cripple. And this uh, man who had been healed receives a new identity. Not only is he physically healed, but he's given a new identity. No longer is he identified by the things, uh, by his sickness, by his illness, by his lameness, but rather he's, he's identified by the fact that um, Christ has healed him. And uh, when Christ says, get up, take up your bed and walk, he does so. Yet, nevertheless, we talked about this last week, just like all of us, uh, this is a man who, um, even though he's been redeemed, he, he still makes some missteps, and one of the missteps that he makes, I think, in verse 16, as he goes and he tells uh, the Jews that it was Jesus who who had healed him on the Sabbath. And Jesus, who had healed him on the Sabbath, um, when the Jews find that out, the the Jews um Persecute Jesus, and that kind of opens the way for this discourse that we're going to see. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 16, if you don't mind following along, and then we will go down through verse 29. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. judgment. Father, one more time, we pray that you would open this up to us, that you would help us to see this for what it is. And Father, we pray that you would use it to bring about life in our hearts and our minds. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear the voice of your son this morning. Pray it's in his name. Amen. I'm warning you up front. This is going to be a morbid, something of a morbid sermon um something of a uh, a sermon that is um i hope has a joyful tone um i hope that there's joy in it but a uh, a sober tone um for various reasons this has been a the last few weeks have, have been a, a um, last few weeks have been an opportunity for me to think about death and about eternity um and eternity is before us all I remember um, back in our, our my previous pastorate, I got to know a man who lived close to the church there. And um, he would come out and he would, um, one time he was playing frisbee golf on the church lawn on Sunday morning. So we had to say, can you just wait till we're all done? And um, I got to know him a little bit. And he had a fascinating life. He had a ton of hobbies. He did all this stuff after, after um Uh, you know he didn't you know he just kind of ran from one hobby to the next and we were talking and he said yeah I have to I have to learn how to distract myself I think it's about the saddest sentence I've ever heard but the truth is that we all know what this man knows that death is coming and we are on eternity's doorstep this week as I was uh, driving I passed the cemetery and I've been a pastor long enough to be able to imagine the scenes that have happened at that cemetery that um, when when the, the, when the bodies were interred and the family stood around them and and wept and grieved the passing of their loved one. And as the days and the years and the months went by the, the, those memories, they they never wholly faded, but they they doled a little bit. And, and uh, and I've been a pastor long enough to be able to imagine the scenes that have happened there, the, the memories that were shared and, and the and not only the memories that were shared but also maybe some of the tensions that were in the family that came out and i've been a pastor long enough to to know that those memories themselves will pass with the people uh who, who themselves pass the death is coming for us all we are all on eternity's doorstep that eternity is before us this morning it's before us every day but this morning you might not make it through the end of this sermon. And that's not because this sermon is going to be particularly long. (laughs) Eternity and death is before us today. Any one of us, when we are done with the service this morning, uh, we can walk out into uh, into the street and, and get hit and go to meet our Maker. Eternity is before us this morning, so my plea for you today is do not distract yourself. do not spend your life or the next hour distracting yourself from what is coming, but think deeply about it and prepare well for it. This passage this morning gives us uh, helps us to prepare for for death, helps us to prepare for eternity, helps us to prepare to meet our maker. And it does that, I think by answering three primary questions. The first is who is Jesus? The second is how can he, how he gives us eternal life. And the third is, um, the third is what does faith do? So who is Jesus? How does he give us eternal life? And what does faith do? This passage starts off with a debate about the Sabbath. This passage starts off with a debate about the Sabbath and, and, um, In the first century, um, there was dispute amongst various different Jewish rabbinical schools about the Sabbath. Because the problem was, if you know the first chapter of your Bible, you know that God creates the world in seven days, and then on the seventh day, he takes a rest. But the problem is, if God takes a rest, then that means that all of the universe stops moving. Everything just kind of, everything falls in on itself, and so there was a, a debate amongst the Jewish rabbinical schools of the first century. How much is actually does God actually work on the Sabbath? And some would say this much, and some would say this much, but all, pretty much everybody agreed that God worked on the Sabbath, in some sense, his work of upholding the universe and keeping the universe in check. And when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, notice his justification for it. His justification is not to abolish the Sabbath, although he does, I believe, change it in the New Covenant. His justification for it is not because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. His justification is, I can work on the Sabbath because my Father is working, and if my Father is working, I can also work on the Sabbath. In other words, he's putting himself in a class of beings that is more than human. He's saying, just as God works on the Sabbath so do I. The Jews pick up on this. The Jews know that he is claiming himself to be God. And instead of Jesus hem-hawing and denying it, Jesus presses in even deeper. He, He actually claims in verse 19 to have intimate knowledge of God, knowledge that none of the rest of them have. And not only does he say the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, he... He's saying, not only do I know what the Father is doing like none of you do, I actually do what the Father does like none of you do. He's, again, putting himself in the same class of God. He also claims in verse 20 to have a unique relationship with the Father. It says, for the Father loves the Son. And because the Father loves the Son, he shows him all that he himself is doing. The Father teaches, the, he reveals to the Son everything that he is doing. And the Son sees that, and the Son knows that. In fact, it actually says in verse 20, and greater works than these will the Father show to the Son so that, now catch this, this is what the, Jesus is saying. He's saying, God will show me the works to do so that you may marvel, that he's going to do works that are worthy of marveling at the Son. For as the, And then he, he presses into this deeper, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So just as the Father gives life to the dead, so also the Son gives life to the dead. And the reason for that is spelled out in verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when God revealed himself to Moses and he said, I am who I am. That's akin to saying for I am the God who lives, not who not only who will live, not only who has lived, but the God who lives now, who I am is who I am. And so Jesus, when he says, "I have life in myself," he's claiming to be the same God that Moses saw in the burning bush. Not only is he not only does he have that, that same life, the, the life that gives life to the dead. Not only does he have life in himself, but he actually is given by the Father the right to judge. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Jesus is actually saying the same honor that you give to the Father, the same worship and glory and fealty, is the same honor that I am worthy of. In fact, if you do not honor me, you do not honor the Father who sent me. That the, the son is claiming to have the same, uh, the same worth, the same, uh, the same position of honor, the same position of reverence as the father himself does. What are we to make of this? Because on the one hand, the, the son clearly believes that he has a relationship with the father, that they're not the same person, that, they, that there's a relationship that they share, and yet the son is also claiming access to all that is god whatever it means to be god the son is trying to tell us that's me the only way to make sense of this passage is with something like the christian doctrine of the trinity that there's only one god and no way does this passage deny that there's only one god hero israel the lord your god the lord is one and yet there are as christians have always said there are three persons in the trinity there's father son and holy spirit Is there three gods? No, there's one God. Are they the same person? No, they're not. There are three persons, one God. And this might seem like a contradiction of the idea of monotheism, but it's not. If you go back and you read the passage that Mike just did from Daniel 7 a minute ago. In Daniel 7, you see the Ancient of Days is sitting on the throne. He has the right to judge, the right to rule over all things. And then the Ancient of Days welcomes the one like the Son of Man to come and rule with him on his own throne. The Old Testament clearly teaches monotheism. Daniel teaches monotheism. And yet it's what we might call a complex monotheism, a Trinitarian monotheism, that in the one God there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus is claiming to be God. Sometimes you will hear that people say things that Jesus never claims to be God. I don't know how you can get that after you read this passage and understand what Jesus is communicating. Even the Jews understood of the day. The Jews understood. He was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So who is he? He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. He is the one who is sent by the Father to the earth to give life. So the question is, how, how can we receive that life? How can we receive that life? And that is given to us in verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word. Notice how much emphasis is being put here on the word of the Son. It says the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, in verse 25. That the Father or the Son speaks the very words of God. Now clearly, the son here is Jesus is saying, is that there's two kinds of hearing. There's two kind, So there's kind of the general, uh, you, the Jewish people who he's talking to heard his voice in this day and they did not believe. And yet, there's a kind of hearing that produces life that receives it. And we might distinguish between these two things um, with the words the general call and the effectual call. The general call is the general Word of God that goes out and and is preached to all people, and some reject it. But the effectual call of God is is the call itself that produces life. The call itself that produces life. The call itself that produces faith. That the very faith that we have to receive the Word of God comes from the Word of God. I I love how the... um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and I double check because last time I messed up when I cited the Shorter Catechism. But I got it. I'm pretty sure I got it. But don't check me on this. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 31, says, What is effectual calling? And it answers this way. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ— and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. The effectual call of God, is of, of Christ, is when the Spirit himself works through the ordinary means of grace, through the preaching of the word, through the reading of scripture, through prayer, to actually awaken life and to awaken faith, to change our inner man, and to give us a new heart uh, this effectual call of God is what is spoken of in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, and I love the book of Ezekiel. Um, I'm not sure I would want to get to know Ezekiel personally, but I, lo- I love the book of Ezekiel, and we, we, we hear this story in Ezekiel 37, where he says, "...the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them." and be- Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came to them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army." That the that the prophecy is saying that Ezekiel went to this valley of dry bones and it's just it, it looks like a a, a a giant battle is taking place there long ago and the bones are bleached dried and, and God tells him prophesy over them and as he's prophesying there's this rattling and the bones are coming together and bone to bone and it's getting wrapped in skin and then he prophesies and breath enters into them and what was once dead is now alive. It's because the, the word of God that was spoken, that the, that the breath entered into the bodies and was made alive. And what Jesus is saying here is that he says, I call, I speak God's word over things that are dead and they become alive. That what, what was once dead gets life because I spoke to it. I spoke to it and faith came forth. I called forth faith from the deep and it was created. That's what Jesus is saying here. That what was once dead was given life because of the word of God. That is the effectual call. And it's this effectual call which we keep before us and we remember that all of salvation, from eternity past to eternity future, from now and forever, is because of God's grace. Because if we were dead in our sins... If we were just bleached, dried bones in a valley, the only way we could have life is if he speaks over us. It's the same reality that the book of Ephesians talks about when it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich and rich, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christians, what Jesus is saying is, I've been sent to the fa- by the Father to prophesy over dead bones and bring them to life. That my mission is one of life where I bring what is dead to life. That because Jesus himself speaks, faith comes forth. And that faith is the only way that we grab hold of eternal life. So if Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is sent to speak over us and to bring life forth and bring faith forth, then what does that faith do? What does that faith do? And Jesus continues. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So, Part of the mission that the Father has given to the Son is to judge. And that phrase, Son of Man, is pulled from Daniel 7. And when Jesus says that, he's saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the one that the Ancient of Days has invited to come and judge with him on the throne. I am the one who's been called to judge. I am the one who's been called to judge at the end of time for those who will enter into the resurrection of life or into the resurrection of judgment. Maybe you're here this morning and you think that's just so obsolete to believe that God would judge to believe that God would judge those that are sinful and wicked is that something that you actually believe and and I understand the I understand the tension that goes into that question because maybe like you uh, maybe like me you have, you have friends and family that you know that aren't walking with the Lord, and that's a difficult thing to deal with. But I, I can just tell you, I can just tell you as, as a pastor, and I, I've seen people whose lives have been destroyed because of something that happened to them when they were a child, and people who've been taken advantage of, uh, people who've been profoundly hurt and damaged and betrayed. It is not a greater comfort to think that God will never make that right. It is not a greater comfort to think that those ends will always be loose. It's not a greater comfort to think that God never answers that. It's not a greater comfort to think that injustice and wickedness and, and, and all that is evil in this world can thrive and flourish and there be no consequence. God has sent his son not only to give life, but to judge. And that is a good thing. Because that is our hope that one day God will make what is wrong right. He will make everything that is sad come untrue. Christians, the, the judgment of God at the end of time is something that we can look forward to when we feel broken and persecuted, when we feel that, that this world has not been fair to us. It's something that we can look forward to knowing that God will one day vindicate the righteous. But the problem is, if God judges the wickedness, if God will send his son to to judge those things that are are wrong and sinful and broken, that means that he judges by his standard and not by mine. I would love it if God would judge by my standard and not his. But if God's going to judge, he judges by his standard and not by mine. Which which means that I'm going to be found wanting. Because here is the truly awful and terrible thing that we discover about ourselves when we, discover, when we investigate and look into the tragedies of human history. Is that the seed of whatever it was that worked its way out is present in us. That If we read history and we think, that would never happen to me, I would never do that. I mean, I know that all those people went along, but not me. That's a little bit high-minded and a little bit naive. Given the same circumstances, given the same opportunity, given the same, everything the same, we would have done exactly what they did. Which means that the judgment that is coming is not only for others, it's also for us. The question is, how can we escape? If eternity is on our doorstep, if judgment is coming, if death is around the corner, how can we escape? How can we go into the judgment of li- into the resurrection of life and not the resurrection of judgment? And the answer is by believing in him who sent Jesus, by believing in Jesus Himself. By putting our faith in Christ. The one who is judged so we don't have to be. The one who is condemned so we could be justified. The one who is exiled so we could be reconciled. The one who was forsaken so we could be forgiven. How can we escape the judgment to come? Well, by believing in Christ. That's what this passage says. And maybe you look down and you say, but it says those who've done good to the resurrection of life. It, do, it does say that. But it's not saying that those who've done good have earned the resurrection of life. But rather, because they've been called forth, because Jesus has spoken over them with his effectual call, because he's brought about faith, that good works follow. That good works follow those who have faith. But it's not the good works itself which saves, it's always the faith. And so to have true faith is going to produce fruit. Nevertheless, it's not the fruit that saves us, it's the root, it's faith. And that's what that is saying in verse 29. Now, here is the truly amazing thing about this passage. Notice how it says, the hour is coming and is now here. The hour is coming and is now here. In the New Testament, there's this idea that we might call the already but not yet so not yet has Christ returned, not yet has he brought about judgment, not yet has he, uh, he finished the, the story of human history, and yet already we can enjoy eternity. Already we can access the, the work of redemption. That Even though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are enjoying the fruits of the resurrection. Which means that you do not have to get to eternity to enjoy eternal life. But rather that eternal life you can enjoy now. And it can change everything about you. That by believing in the Son, you can enjoy and experience and rejoice in eternal life. And it's that truth which carries us forward. And it's that truth which we ought to meditate on as we turn to apply this passage to our lives. So let me give you eight applications, eight applications this passage, if I can count right and remember them all. Number one, remember death. Remember death. Eternity is coming. Maybe you think that would make you fearful or anxious, but I find that, the more eternally minded that we are, the calmer and more confident we are in our Savior. Remember death. Don't spend this life distracting yourself for the day that is to come. Don't spend your life reminding yourself that death is just uh, pretending that death's not around the corner. Remember death. Number two. Number two, it is not enough to believe in the Father if you don't also believe in the Son. It's not enough to believe in the Father if you don't also believe in the Son. That to have eternal life, to receive life from the Father, we must receive it how He's given it to us. And He's given us life in the Son. Oftentimes we think about we just want to get people over the big hurdle of getting them to believe in God. And I'm a fan of believing in God. But the hurdle that we must get them to over is believing in the Son of Man. Believing in the Son. And that can only come when, the, when they hear the, Father, the Son's voice. It is not enough to believe in God if we don't also believe in the Son. We must believe in the Son, and therefore they will believe in the Father. Uh, number three. If Jesus is calling today, you ought to listen to him. You ought to listen to him. Do not ignore his voice. Do not stop up his ear. Put your head in the ground like an ostrich. Listen to him. Uh, Yesterday, um, we were hiking over at Bald Mountain, and we were coming down the mountain, and it was a beautiful day. We could see the sun was lighting up the whole valley below, and we could uh, hear... um, down below at the bottom of the mountain there is there's a house, and they have dogs and we we could hear that, and the kids and their roosters and everything playing and my My son was on my back and he lets out this it's almost like a cackle it was like uh i i can't really imitate it, but he was letting out this noise and and it was in my ear, and I probably don't hear as well now and he's just he's just letting out this sound and And we were trying to figure out what in the world, what is this noise that he is making? We realized he was hearing the dogs bark at the bottom of the mountain, and he was trying to bark back to them as loud as he could. (laughs) Christians, when you hear the Son of God, you ought to respond, here I am. When you hear the voice of the Son, when you hear Him calling, Do not hide yourself from him, but listen to him. Listen to the Son of God. Listen to the Son of Man. Pay attention to him. Uh, Number four. It is not just that the Son of God calls to sinners. It's that the Son of God calls to me. The Son of God calls to you. It's not just that He calls to those other people. That, uh, to think that way leaves it in the abstract, in the ethereal, up there, pie in the sky. But to know, He's calling to me. He's called me by name. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. He's, he calls me out and says, come and follow me. When Jesus comes looking for his disciples, he knows which ones he's going to call. He doesn't just come across somebody on the street and say, yeah, you'll do. No, he knew who you were and he knows who you are and he's calling to you. Do not neglect to hear his voice. Number four. If this is true, if we're really understanding this passage, we should leave here much more humble than when we came in we should leave here much more humble than when we came in. Because if faith and life are themselves a gift of God, that means that we don't deserve it. That means that we didn't earn it. That means that it's not something that we ourselves have done. That it takes all the attention off of us and puts all the glory onto Him. This is important to grasp because we live in a day and an age which rewards small acts of pride. I mean, that's what Facebook and Instagram and and all I don't know what social media things are in vogue these days. That's what that's what those are all about. Is they, they they're getting you to look at them, to see the notifications and to feel good about yourself. I'm not saying it's evil to be on them. I'm just saying they, they are there, they are wired to boost up your self-esteem and to make you feel really proud. But when we read the Word, when we listen to the call of the Son, we recognize that He gives life, that He calls forth my faith, that all is because of Him. I was a dead, sun-bleached skeleton in a valley, and He spoke life over me. Number six, if this is true, if we're hearing this right, if we are understanding this passage correctly, we we should leave here more joyful than when we entered. Because if we can enjoy eternal life now, if we can enjoy eternity now, if we can live in the resurrection now, And that means that God has given us a a down payment, a foretaste of the glory that is to come. That we can leave here enjoying God, no matter what afflictions we have in this life. No matter what is breaking in this life. No matter what is falling apart. We should leave here more joyful knowing that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Number seven, if we're understanding this correctly, if we are grasping this, we should leave here bent on doing good. Bent on doing good. So verse 29 says, it says, those who have done good... As we saw in Ephesians, that we've been created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which he has created beforehand for us. We should leave here bent on doing good, aiming and trying with all the the fallen brokenness that we have to try to do good in this life. To try to bless others because time is limited. So we want to raise our children up to be those who are godly. We want to raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We want to bless those who are in our church. We want to help those who we know who are on who have fallen on hard times. Why? Because our resources are scarce, and time is of the essence, and eternity is around the corner. You don't have forever to do good. You have the years that you've been given. Don't squander them. Don't waste the hours and the days and the seconds and the moments that God has given you to live because you will not get them back. Number eight. Christ will one day return. Christ will one day return and he will make all that is wrong right. He will one day return and he will one day give an answer to every word raised against him. We ought to look forward to that. Earnestly, of course, we ought to do everything we can to make sure that we are in the faith, to make sure that we're not trying to get in by the skin of our own teeth, to try to make sure that we're not trying to get in by our own righteousness or on a technicality. We have to do everything we can to make sure that we are trusting in Christ for salvation. And yet we ought to look forward to that day. Because on that day, the book of Revelation tells us this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha." and the omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Father in heaven, we look forward to the day where you will make all that is wrong right. We look forward to the day where every tear will be wiped away from our face, where darkness and death and pain will be no more. Father, you know that we earnestly desire that that day would come quickly, that you would put an end to the brokenness and all the wicked, cruel death-deserving things that are here today. But, Father, until that day comes, would you strengthen our resolve? Would you straighten our backs and put courage in our knees for the days are few? Father, would you make us bent on doing good? Would you make us bent on being joyful Father, would you make us a humble people? Because we know that you have called us by name. And it is in the name of your Son who has called us that we pray. Amen.